Well, this morning, if you have your Bibles, Luke 11. Next three weeks, we're going to be dealing with prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so, so thankful for this morning. And we look to you for grace, for mercy, for help, for blessing in every way. That we, O oh Lord, would hear your word and would be taught and corrected and exhorted, rebuked, encouraged and instructed by it. Have your way with us and work amongst us and in us, for we ask it in Christ Jesus, in his name, our Lord. Amen. Well, in this particular section in Luke that we're looking at is, like I said, it's on prayer, and we're going to be looking for the next three weeks, breaking this down as to what is prayer, how should we pray, and why should we pray. When it comes to prayer... Do many of you ever find this an area of your life where you struggle? Now, you don't have to, you know, if Mike was here, he'd say, yeah! <laughs> but most of us, most Christians, find in their life, at least for seasons, prayer to be a struggle, prayer to be difficult, prayer to be something that we wish we did better. I'm going to begin this morning by reading by reading a, a story from a Christian fellow who actually expresses, I think, what so many of us feel and believe at times. And I felt like by reading it, we could, we could relate to this gentleman in so many ways, in so many places and times where we have really struggled with prayer. He says this, Having been raised in a Christian home, I've been praying for about as long as I've been speaking. I realize I'm blessed to have this upbringing, and it's actually rather extraordinary. I've been able to converse and engage with my Creator for my entire life, but I generally struggle to see any fruit from all this practice. Naturally, as we grow, our prayers themselves and our understanding of the process evolves, but I think for me, prayer is still the most difficult, mysterious, and frustrating part of my walk with Christ. I've never been a prayer warrior. I'm not even sure what qualifies people as such. I've never been a big fan of praying out loud in a group. But I also struggle to spend any great length of time in prayer individually. I get distracted easily. I start praying about something and ten minutes later find myself having a thought, of way, thought my way down a rabbit hole and completely lost all focus. The sheer volume of things about which I should be praying often overwhelms me. And a lot of time I wonder if my fervent whispers really even play a role in my life, others' lives, and God's big picture plan for all of us. I think my primary struggle with prayer lies in the fact that I don't often see and feel the presence of the, or the hand of God as a result of my petitions to Him. I've fasted, and asked the Lord for wisdom in making major life decisions and still been extremely uncertain when making them. I've asked the Lord for peace and rest amidst tears of frustration and emotional turmoil and have not felt relief. I've asked the Lord for the ability to hear His voice and heard nothing but silence. And while I won't deny that the Lord has answered my prayers on many occasions as well, I often wonder if those outcomes weren't the plan already. You see, in my life, I've always hoped I'd see a huge answer to prayer. 
I hear stories from other people about great healing, provision, peace, and direction. I've never experienced an outcome from my prayer that was unbelievably direct and well-orchestrated. But then again, I often wonder if that's just because I'm chalking outcomes up to common sense. Sometimes I think that because I don't see unbelievable miracles around me every day, that my prayers aren't really accomplishing anything. I guess maybe that makes me cynical or analytical, over-analytical. I'll willingly admit to both of those things. I don't like to admit, however, to the fact that I struggle to trust in the power of prayer simply because I haven't really seen a big, huge, incredible answer to prayer yet in my lifetime. That's essentially the opposite of faith. End quote. Now, if you're sitting here this morning, I guarantee at some point in somewhere in his, in his confession there, you can relate to that. Life is a journey, and along that journey, you find yourself at times struggling, at times doubting, at times hurting, at times doing very well, at times praying well, at times not praying so well. You find yourselves at different places at different times. Prayer is often one of those things that causes us to struggle and stumble over. And so for the next three sermons, we'll be looking at what exactly should we be praying, how should we be praying, and why should we be praying. Because when it comes to prayer, Jesus lays out for his disciples and lays out for us in the first part of this chapter these these guiding principles for us in prayer so that we might know what we ought to pray. And he says in chapter 11, verse 1, that Jesus was praying. Look at it. He says, verse 1, Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples, and he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Now, obviously, the disciples, they saw something in Jesus, right? Obviously, the disciples saw something in Jesus and his praying and what he was doing that engaged them, that they saw, man, I sure wish I could pray like that. Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray because, Jesus, we're not very good. When I watch you pray and when I think of myself praying, well, we have a lot to learn. And to... His surprise, or to their surprise, and perhaps even to our surprise, Jesus tells them something so simple that it almost defies being taught. When you pray, say these four lines. Well, surely, they were seeing something in Jesus' prayer other than repeating three or four lines that he tells them to pray. But nonetheless, Jesus cuts straight to the point and he tells them what to pray. He doesn't even say, unlike in Matthew, pray like this. He says here, he says, say this. When you pray, say, boom, 
And he tells them what to say. In Matthew, he says, pray like this. Now, just to be clear, Jesus doesn't have to use the word pray like to mean pray along these general guidelines. Because you can speak like that and just be using that as a general example. For example, you might use the words, you might say to your child, eat your food this way, and then you show them how to eat. But that doesn't mean that if they're left-handed and you're right-handed that they need to switch the fork and knife. It doesn't mean that when they chew, they ha- and you notice that you put your food on the right side of your cheek, that they have to put it on the right side of their cheek. It doesn't mean that when they watch you, watch you chew, that you, they count how many times, and they notice that you, only, you, you chew like 10 times, so they have to chew 10 times. We realize that should almost go without saying that those kinds of details are not the point. When somebody actually imitates us to that degree, we feel like saying, no, 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 stop, stop. You're missing the point, right? What I mean is generally. So when I said, when you eat, eat like this, I didn't mean that every little nuance. And if you've ever had children, you'll notice if you ever did that to them, sometimes they'll almost mock you. And that's what they do. They, they overemphasize all the little details. And you're like, okay, you're missing the point. I didn't mean that you had to almost imitate me or mock me and do exactly like this. What I je- meant is that these are your general parameters. There's principles here. Then you have to try to explain them, the difference between principles and these little minutiae nuances that they're imitating. And they think that's kind of funny. But likewise, when Jesus says, say, pray like this or pray this, he doesn't mean that, oh, man, this is, this is what you pray. You can't pray anything else. Well, we have the Psalms that teach us differently. We even have, there's, there's a prayer, the Jewish prayers that they prayed at the time. We, we even have records of what they prayed, and we know that they pray differently. What Jesus is generally saying is, here are the principles, here are the parameters. This is what you should pray like. And the first thing you should pray for, he says, is pray for the Father's name and his kingdom. He says, pray, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Which means that our first petition in prayer should be that God's name would be treated as holy. Our first thought in prayer should go towards God and his name. But this is not something we think about too often. I would think that when we go to prayer, when you go to prayer, what do you think about? Yourself. Your needs. Your pressures. Your frustrations. Your worries. Your concerns. Your worlds. Right? Wouldn't you agree that that's typically, when you say, when you pray and how do you start? What's the need? And you go to it. It's not uncommon for us to focus on ourselves and and really, truly neglect a prayer for God in His name. However, think of it this way. If we love someone, we want their name to be honored. We want them to be exalted. We want them to be glorified. We want them to be esteemed. We like it. We enjoy it when someone we love is honored, right? Just think of it. If you're parents and you've had children and they've ever won an award in front of people, that's the proudest day of your life. They're up there, and it's a, especially it's an important award, and there they are. They're going to get this for the, you know, the Outstanding Character Award. And you're beaming proud. This is a great day, you know. They get this award, and you're so excited because there they are being esteemed. There they are being honored. And why do you like that so much? Because 
you love them. You love them. And your love for them and your affection for them, when you love them, you like that their name is honored and it's esteemed. Just think of the opposite. When someone you love and their name is not honored or esteemed, how does that make you feel? It makes you angered. Just think, so there's your child being honored, being esteemed. What if you're standing around and you hear some, you hear some kids maligning your child, spreading nasty rumors, saying things about them they shouldn't say, dishonoring them, disrespecting them, being malicious. Well, you better get angry, and you would get angry. Why? Because you love them. The ones you love, you want their name honored and esteemed, and you hate it when their names are not honored and esteemed. In the same manner, we ought to be the kinds of people we really what's what's the first and greatest commandment to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength that's the first and greatest commandment a love for his name a love for who he is a love for him and therefore it what should be primary and first obviously is that his name would be honored and here's the thing when we look around the world today we see the people in our communities. Do you see many people honoring the Lord's name? Do you, do you see them esteeming him, honoring him, upholding him, giving him credit and the honor due his name? I mean, th- just think of it. Every single thing they enjoyed <clears throat> up to this point, every pleasure they've delighted in, every crumb they've put in their mouth and drink and everything that they've ever said oh that was good look at that that's nice it's great these are all god's gifts to them and yet they didn't even thank him or glorify him but instead and often it can range anywhere from actually just ignore him to actually outright dishonor him hate him throw his name under the bus so to speak And if we love God, we should look around and daily we should be vexed. We should be vexed over the fact that people walk around and and they don't acknowledge Him, they don't thank Him, they don't honor Him at all. But you know what happens to all of us? We get used to it, don't we? It's just the world we live in. It's just the way it is. It's, It's the Northwest. It's Seattle, after all. And it becomes commonplace. That's what people, people just, they don't honor God around here. They dishonor his name. They don't actually, in fact, it's either, it it can range anywhere from just agnostic, indifferent, to to a little bit hostile or extremely hostile. But when you love, that should bother you. So the first thing that Jesus says, when you pray, what should be the first anchor in your prayer, he says? The first thing you should pray for is pray, and this is, this is really, it's, it's not just the exaltation of, of, of God's name. You pray that, oh, Father, may your name be considered holy. May it be hallowed. We're also saying, may your kingdom come. And we're saying these two things because we love him. We want God's name to be honored because he's so good, does so much good, has blessed us with so many things that his name needs to be honored. And we want his kingdom to come because we are sick of looking around and seeing darkness prevail. We cannot stand the evil. We look around and we hate it when people are, are like wicked. They rape, they kill, they murder, they, they, they trash, they hurt, they defame 
they cheat, they steal, they're corrupt, they commit fraud, they're adulterous. They're constantly doing one thing after another that is nothing but ugly and wicked. But when the kingdom of God goes forward, what happens? It's the kingdom of light. It's the kingdom of goodness and righteousness. What ends up happening is God moves forward with his spirit. And as he does, he brings conviction of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And they turn to God in repentance and in faith. And they turn to praise him and give glory to his name. You know what? When we see someone go from a hater of God to a lover of God, that should thrill our souls. That's my testimony. I once hated God. But now I love him. I once was an enemy of God. But now I'm a friend of God. I once would never, there was a time when I could, I would never, when I was young, would never, ever, ever speak in the way I'm speaking right now. The kingdom of God came and smashed into my life and smashed into my world, destroyed the darkness, and has been reforming, renewing, and changing me. This really, this first request in our prayers has really got to be a passion for God's name, a passion for his kingdom and really looking out in the world and wanting nothing more than for God's name, his kingdom, and his glory to advance. It's, it's very evangelistic. Oh, Lord, I pray that your name would be honored in this area. May the Seattle area praise your name. May the people, my, my friends, may the family members, may they see who you are and understand your goodness. And may your kingdom come forward with such advancing power that it demolishes the kingdom of darkness. That really ought to be our prayer. The the first part, a foundational component to our prayers. Yet if we're honest, it really isn't. Right? So often is forgotten. So often just our needs and the pressing issues of our lives is what comes down upon us. And that becomes our prayer. And that's where it leads us to this next section. Where Jesus says, yeah, you don't get forgotten and your needs are important. That's where he says, pray, Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our daily bread. I've preached on this before. And when I did, I talked about how this expression is understood in their culture. In the time of Jesus. Bread in that time was a staple in their diet. And was often referred to as representing the whole meal. People would have a whole meal with vegetables. And they would have meat and sauces, bread and wine. And they would say that they broke bread together. And everybody understood. They know they had a meal together. A whole meal. Even in our culture, we have expressions using bread to speak of something else. Just think of this. Who's the breadwinner in your family? Do we really mean a person who wins bread? (laughs) Obviously, right? It's an expression. No. We know. What does that mean? The person who makes the money. So we don't have to, we, in our age, if someone read that, now let's go back in Jesus' time, and they read, they talk here, it says somebody's saying that they're the breadwinner. What the? Breadwinner, what is that? What does that mean? Do they like do a lottery and pick numbers and someone wins a loaf of bread? That's how expressions are difficult. They're difficult to understand because they're culturally embedded. And everybody gets it. But when you're outside the culture, you don't get it at all. Sometimes it makes no sense. Grab the bull by the horns. (laughs) That's a dumb idea. 
<laughs> what are you talking about, right? Yet when you're in, you're in, and it's, it's shorthand. We all get it. This is what Jesus is saying here. Pray that God would give you your daily bread. Bread was that symbol, especially in Jewish culture, of God's blessing in your life. Bread, like the, bread, the manna that came down from heaven. Bread was the cornerstone. If you break bread, it meant that you have a meal together. God gave us our daily bread is saying, God, give us our daily essentials, the things we need for life, the basic needs. Now, us, in our particular day, we don't, we don't think in terms of bread, like, oh, God, give me my daily bread. Because if, if we were in an agrarian culture, that would make more sense because what we want is, if well, we have, we have some bread and some vegetables and, you know, some water. Maybe it would be nice to have a goat, maybe goat's milk and whatever. Those would be essentials. And, and those would be the things that would concern you in that day. If you get anxious or you get worried in all cultures, in all ages, in all times, it's to have the basic necessities. If you worry about anything in your life, you worry about basic necessities. But for us in our culture, that all translates to cash. Money. Because in our culture, if you have money, you eat. If you have money, you pay your bills. If you have money, you can keep your home over your head, roof over your head. If you have money, you, could, you can do what you need to do. This covers the basic necessities. So, you know, you can keep your daily bread. We might see all I need is a little cash. But it's the same thing. It's just culturally different. Basically, what we're asking for is that God would give us the essentials, the essentials for life. Because these are the things that cause us to be concerned and worried. I could do a survey right now, and I guarantee you, what probably gets most people anxious are their finances. And we'd say, would you agree? Yes, yeah. Because even if you start getting a lot of finances, you can start being afraid of losing them. Can you imagine losing all this? What if things go down all of a sudden that you're freaked out about losing what you have? This is crazy. I used to be freaked out about not having enough. Now I'm freaked out about losing. I got too much. I'm afraid I'll lose it. And it becomes an issue in all of our lives. So you have to understand that we have basic needs and necessities. And God knows that. He says in Matthew 5 where he says, I know, I know what you need. He knows what you need. He knows you need food and clothing and easy, your necessities need to be taken care of. But seek first the kingdom of God. So part of your prayer, you really need to go to the Lord and look to the one who ultimately provides everything for you. And make it daily in your prayers and continuing your prayers that your needs, your financial needs, the things that cause you worry and concern, you struggle over, take it to God and say, Lord, I know that you're my provider. Please provide for us all that we need, our basic necessities. And I thank you for being that provider. And I thank you for how you will provide. If you're not constant and continual in prayer in this regard, it will soon take over your life and consume you and concern you. You actually need to pray about your daily finances. And I want to say finances because I think it relates and connects to daily bread. Because that's where most of your concerns lie. Make it a prayer. And even in the process of praying, a lot of times it sets your heart and your mind aright. 
as you pray about those things and as you give them to the Lord and leave them with him and thank him for taking care of that and putting your trust in him, that process alone will change your heart and your mind often. The next thing Jesus actually has them pray for is forgiveness. Jesus says something here in particular about forgiveness. He says, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Forgive us our sins. You know, it's interesting here that we're not just asking God to forgive us. We're also in this prayer forgiving anybody who sinned against us. And the reason being is that forgiveness is the vital, is a vital component to the quality of your soul's well-being. It's essential to a good life. If we aren't forgiven for something we've done, then there's strain, there's guilt, and there's shame in a relationship with God and with the peoples we sinned against. And the only way for that to be removed, the only way for that to get out of the way, the only way for the guilt, the shame, the anxiety, the stress inside your soul to be removed is to be forgiven. Forgiveness is essential to living a quality life. To living a life of peace, to living a life of joy, to living a life under God, there must be forgiveness. You have to be forgiven. This is why truly healthy souls... Those who are, whose life, if you look at someone's life marked with love, marked with joy, marked with peace, do you know what's essential to that? They are one who lives and dwells in forgiveness. They have been forgiven, and they forgive others extremely quick. Forgiveness is a centerpiece to their lives. The grumpy, the harsh, the mean, the nasty, the frustrated you'll often have issues of unforgiveness. There's a lack of peace, a lack of joy. You should really examine your heart. Is there someone that I'm not forgiving? Is there, is, there, is there a sense in which I'm not understanding or knowing the forgiveness of God? In either case, it's an issue. The need for forgiveness in your life is like having a heavy debt hanging over your head that you know you need to pay, but you don't have the resources to pay it. And you know it will not go away. The weight, the heaviness will not go away until it's removed. This idea of debt and forgiveness is such a central part to our well-being that if you look in the Old Testament, it's a massive issue within the law. How to deal with debt. How to deal with uh, uh, those who are indebted to you. How, the year of every seventh year, There's to be forgiveness and there's to be restoration. And this was to relieve debt. And debt, financial debt, in those days was equated, it can be equated even with spiritual debt. And the fact that, like, if I sin against you, there's something happens in the relationship. And there's spiritually, there's something that happens between us. Our spirits are unknit. And the only way for that to get restored, the only way for it to come back together is through forgiveness. The greatest climax in all of the Old Testament in reference to debt and for forgiveness comes at the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, that 
Even how it's named, just think of it, festival, uh, jubilation, rejoicing, uh, the, the year of just absolute festivity. Was this to the year of jubilee, the year when everything would be forgiven and restored? This was the climax of the whole law uh, in regard to the fulfillment of the section of the law in terms of indebtedness and what to do when someone's indebted. How else do you describe being restored? How else do you describe being forgiven? How else do you describe taking this heavy debt and removing it and being free except with jubilation? This is, in in, in Israel, never did it. Never did it. Because the people who, who held the debt would never let go of it because they were greedy. They didn't want to give forgiveness. They didn't want to give love. But the one comes, the only one comes, like the one who's been indebted the most, the one who has the most, holds the most debt against us is God. And he comes and sends his own son to pay that debt for us, to relieve the debt to, so we could go free. God, I owe you so much. I owe you everything. When we come to understand the debt we have before God, it should overwhelm us. And it does when the Spirit gives us eyes to see. When the Spirit allows us to see what we owe God, what we've done against Him, what our debt is, it's so overwhelming. And then God comes to us and He says, this truly is the year of Jubilee because you know what? My son's paid it. You're forgiven. Go free. Now that's a Jubilee. And that's why when most people come to know the the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, they can barely contain themselves from dancing. They want a party. It is described as a joyous jubilee to feel and to know and to experience the forgiveness of God. And those of us who experience it then are even eager to extend it. Someone who knows and understands their own forgiveness is happy to pray, and I forgive all those who sinned against me, because no matter who sinned against me, no matter how they sinned against me, no matter how wicked it was, no matter what, it doesn't even come close to what God has forgiven me. I sinned against God way worse than any of them, and when you understand that, you get how you sinned, and then you look at their sin, you say, man, I gladly forgive you. What should Mark the people of God, is a jubilee of forgiveness. You should be the kind of person someone comes up to and says, would you forgive me for saying what I said? He said, I gladly forgive you. Yes. Your children should be able to come up to you and say, would you forgive me for what I've done? I gladly forgive you. I forgive you and I love you and I forgive you again and again. And I forgive you. Why do you do that? Why should we act like that? Oh, let me tell you. Do you understand how much God has forgiven me? Do you know who I was? Do you know what I've done? Do you know who I am? God does. And he says to me, forgiven. It should be a jubilee, a party of forgiveness. The church should be a party, a festivity. We should live in the year of jubilee. Why? Because there's just so much darn forgiveness. Everyone forgives everyone. You know, we, we start messing up and we, we, we incur debt with one another, social debt, relational debt. And we're so quick to forgive. Why? Because, man, that's, that's, how, that's how our God treats us. That's what he's done for us. Forgiveness. You know, lastly here, Jesus deals with, not, 
he, he, all these foundational issues, but he deals with this being delivered from evil. And I recently actually talked about this in a sermon when I was dealing with a few weeks back about the demonic activity that's going on around us and the need to actually pray for deliverance and how important it is to pray for deliverance. You know, Jesus wants to make sure that it's a regular staple in our prayers. Because we often forget and we fail to understand the battle we're in. We fail to understand how difficult life is, the struggles, the stresses, the battle that's raging around us. We quickly become materialists who deal with everything merely on the physical level. And because of this, we don't see the evil unless it flares itself up in actually nasty activity. And then sometimes we deal with it just merely on the physical basis, not knowing that, yeah, there's evil people, but there's an evil one, and there's, and there's uh, evil demons, and there's not only physically evil people, but there's actually evil spirits. This world and the world we live in is a world in conflict. We should not be surprised. Have you saw lately, have you seen lately, how many reactions come from in this whole political realm, what's happening, you watch people's reactions, and as you watch the reactions sometimes by what's being done, you can see that there is some, it's, there's something serious going on here. Seriously, way beyond just merely the physical. You see such reactions, and you see sometimes the evil and the wickedness will begin to manifest itself, that you, are, you become very aware that there's more going on than meets the eye. People, do not be deceived. It's not just physical. This is, it's not saying people are like, oh, to lump people together and say, oh, that's just liberals. That's what liberals act. That is so wrong. This is like totally misunderstanding the point. Not all, for one, not all liberals act like that. And to do that is to not understand what's really going on in this world. In this world, with devils filled, as Martin Luther said, there's a lot of demonic activity going on, and sometimes you see the manifestation of it. And you, and you, and you know what? Our reactions shouldn't be like the world, and somehow just all of a sudden you know, condemn these people or mock them or say things about them as if it, that's... You know, what, that's how you deal with it. Or think that there's just merely an argument that we can make against it. There's no argument you can make against it. You shouldn't mock it. But I'll tell you what you should do. You should pray for it. We need to pray. Oh, Lord. And, and believe me, you need to be delivered from the evil one. You need to be delivered from evil. You, your children, your family, your friends. If God did not push back, if he sovereignly did not rule over it and, and suppress it and, and fight against it, there is not a person in this room who could stand. You're in deep trouble. You, we need to live and understand and knowing that right outside our door is an enemy with a bazooka so big he could knock your head off and you'd be done for. They're, and they're all over the place. You walk into a world, you live in the dynamics of a world where there's evil, the world, the, the, the devil and, and, and his children and the world itself heaves, is heaving against God, wrestling against God, fighting against God, can't stand it. So what do we do? You pray. Oh Lord, deliver me. 
Deliver my children, my wife, my family, my friends. Please deliver us from evil. We can't stand. You're my shield. You're my buckler. You're my defense. You're my strong tower. You are my fortress. And apart from you, I can do nothing. I'd be shredded, O Lord. But if you go before me, if you be with me, nobody can stand. But walk out, thinking it's a skip in the park. Not thinking that you need to seek the Lord and look to Him to be your defense. And don't be surprised at your fall. Don't be surprised when evil meets you at the doorstep. It's real. And it's intense. And you have to do battle against it. How do you? Get on your knees. Pray. Pray to the Lord for His defense, His protection. And He will deliver you. So let me conclude and bring this all together. As we look at this, Jesus here is laying out for us the main, the staples of prayer. The foundational components. When you pray, say this, pray this, he says. Pray these things. Let it be the framework of your prayers. Begin within your prayers and let, be reminded, I'm going to pray that God's name is honored because I love God, I love His name, and I want His kingdom to advance. Pray for that. Not just that, pray for your daily essentials, the financial essentials you need, and look to God and trust Him to provide and care for you. Pray for forgiveness. Pray for forgiveness for, and, and declare forgiveness to others. Look to God for forgiveness constantly and always. Be one who's quick to look to Him for His forgiveness and receive it. And also pray for deliverance and protection. I'm telling you what, you pray like this, if these are the four corners of your prayers, you know what to pray. You're praying according to the will of God. You are praying in a way that essentially covers the bases in your life. This is what you need. Pray like this, Jesus says, because he knows what he's talking about. Amen. Father, we're so thankful we praise you that you've given us you've given us this instruction that we know what to pray because even from apart from this we don't know what to do we don't know what to say often we don't know where to go and we're so thankful that you teach us instruct us i pray for these people here this morning and for everyone that they would see and understand the glories of praying in this way of knowing and using this as their foundation, of seeing the importance of what they should be praying for. I ask that you'd make us these kinds of prayer people, that we would pray like this, and we would be diligent in it. For we ask this in Christ. Amen.